0: Good morning, let us uh, open our Bibles to Ephesians chapter six, Ephesians chapter six, and this morning we are looking at verses five through nine, five through nine, life-changing power of the Lord Jesus, please uh, listen attentively and with faith as we read God's word, beginning in verse five of Ephesians chapter six. Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether He's a bond servant or is free. Masters do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven. And that there is no partiality with him. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. It is clear that there is no area of our lives. Absolutely no area of our lives to which the gospel of Jesus Christ does not speak. There is no area of our lives that remains unaffected by the grace of the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. There is no area of our lives that is outside the reach of its power. The gospel of Jesus affects and informs everything about our lives. It informs our views of the church, the family, society, the meaning of life. And yes, it even changes and challenges our views of our trials, our tribulations, our sufferings, our circumstances. And it does it in the most profound of ways. In fact, it would even be appropriate to say that the Christian life is, for the most part, the ongoing process of learning to submit and conform our thinking, our emotions, our affections, our relationships, and everything else to scriptural truth and the supremacy of Christ. That's what the Christian life is. It is to develop a Christ-centered view of everything about you. And please notice that all-important word, develop. Develop. If we are honest with ourselves, we must recognize the fact that we are not born with an innate desire to submit and conform everything to scriptural truth and the supremacy of Christ. After all, Isn't that one of the main reasons why we are here this morning? Aren't we here this morning to encourage one another to love and good works and to persevere? Aren't we here this morning to be reminded of gospel truth? Don't you need it? Aren't we all in the fight for holiness together? Right? We're not pretending. Now, let me give you an example of what I mean. In our care groups, we are studying together the Beatitudes as recorded in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 5. One of the first things that we notice about them is their counter cultural and counter intuitive nature. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Why not the rich? Blessed are those who mourn. Why not the happy? Blessed are those who hunger and thirst. Why not the satisfied and blessed are the persecuted. Why not those who have an easy life? It would seem like being rich in spirit might be better than being poor in spirit. It would seem like being joyful might be better than mourning. It would seem like being satisfied might be better than hungering and thirsting. And it would seem like having an easy life might be better than being persecuted. Wouldn't you agree? What is more, it is quite clear that our normal tendency in life is to want to find self-fulfillment. Isn't that the very motto of our modern society? Do and be whatever it is that fulfills you. Are you a man, but would be more fulfilled as a woman? Then go ahead. Forget about your objective Biological and anatomical makeup. It doesn't matter anymore. Do what fulfills you. Go ahead. I don't think it would be an exaggeration to say that self-fulfillment is the idol of our time. And yet, I ask you, my Christian brother and sister, what lies at the very core of our calling as Christians? To what does Jesus call us all To take up our cross and to deny ourselves while the world is trapped in this obsessive, never-ending quest for self-fulfillment. The Lord Jesus calls us to be engaged in a lifelong quest for self-denial. This is what I mean when I say that the Christian life is the ongoing process of learning to submit and conform everything about us to scriptural truth and to the supremacy of Christ. We must learn to think, we must learn to feel, we must learn to understand, we must learn to interpret everything as people who are under the absolute and unquestionable authority of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, our Redeemer. And brothers and sisters, if there is one passage of scripture that makes this very, very clear, is the passage in front of us this morning. The sermon consists of three main parts. First, we will ask the obvious question. We will ask the obvious question. Then we will seek to find the central argument. And finally, we will give some thought to the practical application. That's it. Three parts. The obvious question, the central argument, and the practical application. Simple enough? Yeah? Good. Good. That's all I have. So, even if you don't like it, it's, it's all you get this morning. Let's ask point number one, the obvious question. By the obvious question, I'm not referring to a question explicitly written in these verses. The obvious question is sort of lying behind the words themselves. Any ideas as to what the obvious question might be? In case you don't know... Let me give you two clues in the form of two words. Bondservants and masters. That's a clue. Two clues right there. Bondservants and masters. Paul is addressing these specific words to bondservants and masters. Paul is addressing these words to those who were literally, literally owned by others as private property. And Paul is addressing these words to those who literally owned other people as private property. The word bond servant is translated in the NASB version of the Bible as slave. And that's actually what bond servant means slave. Doulos in the Greek, slave. Now, there are differences in modern day slavery and what it was back then in the ancient world of the Roman empire. Let me give you a few to begin with many of the slaves in ancient times could eventually buy their freedom back. Normally by the time they were around 30 years of age, how could they? Well, many of them were actually paid for their services. Not every slave was paid and not all of them could buy their freedom, but eventually many of them, could they would save all their money to eventually be free. Here's another difference. Was that slavery in the Roman empire had little to do with race or skin color. The slavery that Paul had in mind had to do primarily with three elements of society. And here they are war, poverty or birth. Prisoners of war were normally turned into slaves. Free people who were poor were known to sell themselves into slavery and many, many of them were simply born into slavery. And as it is usual with any form of slavery, some slaves were horribly mistreated and died young. Others, however, were fairly well off. In fact, Poor free people often sold themselves into slavery because this would guarantee three meals a day, a place to sleep, and possibly even an income, none of which were easy to obtain at that time by a poor person. But the central concept of is what's the same as it has always been. One human being owned another human being. Horrific. And this finally leads us to the obvious question. What is the obvious question? Why is it that Paul did not see the need to challenge the reality of slavery? Why is it that Paul did not see the need to challenge the reality of slavery? Let me be more specific. Why did Paul not say masters, it is time for you to free your slaves. Why did Paul not say, masters, it is about time that you understand that owning another human being is a horrific sin. Let them go. Or why did Paul not say, masters, your slave is now your brother in Christ. Stop treating him as though he were your property and give him his freedom. Why didn't he say any of that? Moreover, isn't it at least possible that the slaves reading or hearing this letter read, ask themselves the same questions. Wait a minute, brother, Paul, sounds good and all, but, uh, how come you're not rooting for my freedom brother Paul? How come you're not calling for my immediate release? Wouldn't this be the perfect moment to do so brother Paul? Are you for slavery? Paul? Why do you say that? How do we respond to that? Well, the answer has three parts, three parts. The first part of the answer to the obvious question is of course, contextual, contextual the history around the time of the letter slavery was deeply, deeply ingrained in their society. Many slaves did not know any other way of life because many of them were born into slavery. Many masters did not know any other way of life because they were also born into it. This is the world in which they lived. Paul was acutely aware of this. He knew and he understood his context. He knew that to ask masters to free their slaves in this historical context or to ask slaves to demand their freedom would have possibly created incredible amounts of tension because slavery was part of the very makeup of their society. In other words, many of these people did not even have the mental framework to even begin to understand the concept of emancipation. It would have been foreign to them. Slavery was a fact of life and even we could say essential to their socioeconomic system. It was just the way it was. That's the first part of the answer to the obvious question, the context. The second part of the answer is teleological. And I've used that word before, meaning it has to do with purpose, which is what the word telos means, purpose, goal. In other words, the second part of the answer has to do with Paul's understanding of the purpose or the end goal of Christianity and the church of Jesus Christ. Paul knew very well that Christianity, listen to this, Christianity is not primarily about social reform or political activism, but about the kingdom of God in the hearts of believers, through faith in Christ and the work of the Holy Spirit. Therefore, notice with me, please, that Paul did not call for a revolution. Don't miss that. Of course, we know that the very opposite is, was at the heart of Karl Marx's understanding of the world and how society functions. Marx believed that at the center at the very center of the progress and the evolution of any society, listen to this was the idea of conflict between the poor and the rich, the haves and the have nots the boss and the worker, the master and the slave Marxist ideology rides upon the shoulders of ongoing conflict between the classes. The worker needs to take over and show the boss who's boss. It is a call to never ending struggle for domination and control. That's Marxism. Later on, his philosophy came to be known as dialectic materialism, which is a reference to the constant and violent dialogue between those at the bottom and those at the top. And as one prominent philosopher and theologian of our time, John frame remarked, for Karl Marx. And I quote, there is no possibility of reconciling the two parties so that they can live together in peace End quote, that's what Marx believed. In other words, humanity, according to Marx was bound to remain in endless conflict and at the heart of this conflict was the struggle between social classes. Marx sought to divide the world. There could never be peace. Therefore, peace on earth and goodwill to men for Marx were simply not attainable. Marxist convictions and ideology were and still are diametrically opposed to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Clearly, Marxism and the gospel of Jesus cannot coexist, they are mutually exclusive. Why? because Christ transforms everything. And because of Christ, we can, with the angels, we can say peace on earth, goodwill to men because of Christ. We can say to those who are in the faith, regardless of who they are, we are one with Christ. Paul then was neither a social reformer, not a political activist. In fact, if he was, this would have been the perfect opportunity to show it, but he did not. Now, Don't misunderstand what I'm saying. I am not saying that we as Christians should not be concerned for justice and for the fair treatment of all people. We should hate. We should hate. Let me emphasize that word. We should hate all forms of racism, all forms of injustice, all forms of slavery, human trafficking, and abortion, etc. We must love justice. And we must live our lives under the conviction that all men are created in the image of God, regardless of how they look. But please notice with me the unmistakable reality that for the Apostle Paul, there is something greater still. Greater than what? Well, in the mind of the Apostle Paul, there's something more powerful than any social reform, more effective than any political activism, and more relevant than any cultural agenda. In other words, and going back to the obvious question, there is an ultimate reason why Paul did not call slaves to demand their immediate release from their masters. And there is an ultimate reason why Paul did not ask or demand masters to grant the immediate release of their slaves. We have looked at the contextual reason and the teleological reason. The third one is the theological reason, which is also the central reason argument in our sermon. The next point, the central argument. I want to read the verses again. Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling. "'with a sincere heart as you would Christ, "'not by way of eye service as people pleasers, "'but as bondservants of Christ, "'doing the will of God from the heart, "'rendering service with a good will, as to the Lord and not to men, "'knowing that whatever good anyone does, "'this he will receive back from the Lord, "'whether he's a bondservant or is free. "'Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, "'knowing that he who is both their master and yours "'is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him.'" As I said, the central argument is also the theological argument or the theological answer to the obvious question that we asked a few moments ago. But before I tell you what that is, I want to carefully lead you into it. Normally, what I would do at this point is to try to break down this passage into smaller portions so that you can see all the parts in order to make sense of the whole. Rather, I will point out what all of Paul's instructions to both slaves and masters have in common. Notice this in our Bibles, Paul's words to the slaves is divided up into four verses, but in the Greek is one long sentence. And in all that, Paul gave the slaves one command. That's it. One command. What is that command? Obey your earthly masters. That's it. One command. The rest of the sentence is an explanation of how the obedience is to be carried out. Paul provides a series of descriptions of obedience. First, he says, it is to be done with fear and trembling, meaning with a deep sense of respect for their masters. Second, it is to be carried out from a sincere heart and not as people pleasers. That is to say, not for human praise. Third, slaves must render their service with a goodwill, meaning not reluctantly or begrudgingly. And what does he say to masters? To masters, Paul says, do the same to them. In other words, treat them with the same respect you expect from them. The golden rule. And don't threaten them. It was a a common practice back then to use intimidation. To get slaves to do whatever it is that the master wanted. Consider with me very briefly the very high high expectations coming from the apostle Paul what Paul is saying to both slaves and masters is deeply counterintuitive and openly countercultural, to say the least masters give your slaves respect and stop intimidation slaves render your service service to your masters wholeheartedly what You can imagine that at this point, many objections could have been raised against Paul. I'm sure you can think of at least a few. Therefore, Paul, anticipating any and all objections to what could have been perceived as a deeply troubling instruction, he does what he always does. He drives the gospel of Jesus through every single one of those commands. Because in Jesus, all these instructions hold together in perfect harmony. Don't miss the fact that every command that comes from the pen of the apostle Paul, both to slaves and masters is ultimately anchored in Christ. Notice with me in verse five, slaves are told to obey their masters as they would what Christ in verse six. They are told to operate as slaves of Christ in verse seven. They are told to render their service As to the Lord. And in verse 8, they are told that it is the Lord, the one who holds their reward. What about masters? Well, they are to treat their slaves in the same way because they themselves have a master, Christ Jesus, and he is in heaven. So what is the central argument then? What is the theological answer to the obvious question? Here's what I believe the central argument is. Here it is as disciples of Christ and citizens of heaven, our main duty is not to seek our best life now, by any means possible, but to adorn the gospel of Jesus with a holy life, whatever our immediate circumstances might be at any given point, our contentment, our gratitude and our fellowship as believers in this life are never to be understood never to be understood as contingent upon earthly factors, but always and ultimately as the outcome of our union with Christ, which nothing in this world can change or destroy. Few other passages of scripture can make this point with greater force than this one. Therefore, Paul is not making a new argument. He's simply reminding us, Of the same argument he has been making all along since the beginning of the letter, Christ is everything. Christ is all look to him. It is clear that the apostle Paul never grew weary of making the same point over and over and over again. Have you noticed that? Why? Because we tend to forget it over and over and over again. To both the slaves and the masters, Paul said, consider where your identity really is. And that is the issue, is it not? Man has always been busy looking for identity. For that which defines him, according to one scholar, There have always been four main categories in life that have served to provide men with a sense of identity and meaning. First, he said it was the political man. Who is this man? Well, this is the man who found his identity in politics in his contribution to the civic community. Then after the political man came the religious man. This is the man who sought his identity in religious activities. And this gave way to the third type of man, the economic man who is the economic man. Well, this is the one who found his identity in his trade, his work, his job. And finally he talks about the psychological man. Who is this man? Well, in his case, the psychological man, his identity is found inward in the self. He looks within to find purpose and satisfaction. Who are we? Well, I can tell you good news. We're none of them. What are we then? We are the Christ centric man. That's how we are. We are the Christ centric men because Christ Jesus redefines everything about us. He gives us our meaning is the Lord Jesus. At this point, I want to turn into our third consideration for this morning, which is the practical application of these important verses. How do they speak to us in the context in which we live now? I believe Paul's main preoccupation and one that is consistent throughout his writings is this Christians need to behave like Christians at all times in all places and under all circumstances because they are members of the body of Christ and they are people under his Lordship. We all belong to the household of God and we have a duty toward one another. And this duty toward one another is founded upon a transcendental principle, an unchanging truth. In fact, it is founded upon a person namely the Lord Jesus Christ. So here are a few points of application. Number one, letter a, our fellowship And peace are secure in heaven. Our fellowship and our peace are secure in heaven. Consider what Paul said He who is both their master and yours is in heaven. Jesus is in heaven. You know what that means? That means that Jesus is untouched by current events. It means that Jesus is unmoved by earthly commotion. Therefore our fellowship as Christians, our fellowship as believers and our peace with one another are beyond the reach of anything this world or even Satan himself can do to harm us. And as long as our eyes remain fixed on Christ, nothing can tear us apart because he's in heaven, which also means that when we do become divided, It's because something other than Christ Jesus has gained our undivided attention. Brothers and sisters, brothers and sisters, in these volatile times, let us be sure to remain steadfast in our commitment to persevere looking unto Jesus. We cannot afford to lose sight of him. Letter B, the second point of application. Listen to this. Important. Remaining faithful to Christ in your circumstances is more important than finding relief from your circumstances. Remaining faithful to Christ in your circumstances is more important than finding relief from your circumstances. What is our natural tendency? when we find ourselves in very adverse and trying circumstances, like a person living in slavery would. Our human tendency is to seek relief, to find a way out. So much so that many times our desire for relief can cloud our vision and can lead us to forget very quickly that our main calling as Christians is to humble faithfulness and not to earthly comfort. This is why I do now And I always will hate and passionately hate the so called prosperity gospel. I do now, and I always will hate the so called prosperity gospel. Make no mistake about this, that is no gospel. In fact, it is anti gospel. What would Joel Osteen say to the slave? Discover the champion in you? Relax. Your breakthrough is on its way. Smile. Every day's a Friday. Every day's a Friday. <laughs> what would he say? What would he say to the believer who is bedridden? Suffering and dying. He has nothing to say. Thankfully, what he would say matters not. Here's what the word of God says. Remain faithful to the Lord. And I added one more and we'll finish with this letter C. Nothing can adorn the Christian life more beautifully than submissive contentment in Christ under all circumstances. Did you notice? Did you notice what Paul did not say to the slaves? Paul did not tell him, make sure you demand reparations from your masters. Then and only after they have agreed to repay you for any damage done, then and only after then, you too can have fellowship. No, what he said was more shocking. Way more shocking. This is what he said. He said, If you are a slave and you find yourself in those circumstances, you are currently a slave, then be a slave unto the glory of Christ and find your contentment in Him alone. And let us not forget the all important factor that when Paul wrote these words, he was himself in a prison cell suffering for the sake of the gospel. My friends, If Paul said that to slaves, then he can tell us also to quiet our souls in the sufficiency of the Lord Jesus under any circumstances. Bottom line, if you attach your hope and your contentment to anything on this earth, whether that is health, money, politics, government, family, education, or whatever else you can think of, then your hope and your contentment can be here today, but it will be crushed tomorrow. Therefore, you must labor, labor to anchor your hope and your contentment in Christ and in him alone. And should the world fall apart tomorrow, should your health fail tomorrow, should your job be taken away tomorrow, and should your education disappoint you tomorrow, our master is still is in heaven. So I'll finish with this question. Is there anything going on in your life right now that is tempting you to discontentment? Well if you are a Christian then the only explanation must be that your eyes are looking at the wrong place because the source of our contentment has not changed it has not been moved he will never change his name is Jesus Christ so why are you discontent this morning therefore we all here together we can say confidently with the hymn writer mid toil and tribulation and tumult of her war. The church waits the consummation of peace forevermore until with the vision glorious, her longing eyes are blessed and the great church victorious shall be the church at rest. Let's keep looking to Jesus Christ, the source of our our hope and contentment. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for this reminder this morning, though. Simple, yet I hope, Father, and I pray that you will take it and apply it to our hearts. Help us to find our rest, our contentment, our joy, and our hope in Christ and in Christ alone. And during these times of much turmoil, confusion, fighting, anger, help our eyes to be fixed on the person of Christ, who is the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. And it is in his name that we pray. Amen.